0: Um, So this week was really interesting because last week, you know, I I forgot that Advent wasn't beginning last week, it was beginning this week, and I prepared this whole sermon last week on peace, which then I realised I'm going to have to do that this week, but then it got to Wednesday and um, I'm preparing peace part two for this Sunday, thinking, okay, now it's Advent. And uh, Lisa kind of leans over and goes, you realise it's hope this Sunday, not peace. <laughs> do you read your emails, Rob? I'm like, oh no, I've got to figure this one out. Okay, so we're doing hope today, and at some point, I haven't looked at the email, we'll be doing peace, but I'll let you know on the Sunday when I do it, how's that? Um, so it's interesting, this week, I'm, Wednesday, Thursday, I started scrambling around thinking, okay, hope, 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 hope. And the word itself, I actually find quite fascinating. What does hope really mean for us? You know, I hope that Liverpool will win tomorrow. And as a supporter of Liverpool, and a supporter also of Newcastle today, that they beat Man United because I'm supporting any team that plays Man United, and my hope is that they will win, or my hope is that meaning I will lose. And usually with hope, I have this thing that if I just try hard enough, it will happen, right? Anyone got that? If I hope harder. And so as a, as a fan of football, if I, yes, if I will it enough, it will happen. And it's not necessarily the biblical view of hope though, right? So it was fascinating. Um, I read a uh uh, a survey done by um, uh, Gallup, and they said the word hope is most associated with Christians for as the return of Jesus. That's what their hope is all about. So if they think of hope, the immediate thing that comes to mind for American Christians in particular is Jesus is about to return. And in fact, not, not long ago, it reminded me of a, a Pew research Survey that they had done a couple of years back, and out of that, it was stated that 58% of white evangelical American Christians believe Jesus will definitely return by 2050. Definitely return by 2050. That's more than half of what's, what's the empirical evidence for that? Doesn't matter. We just know. It's almost like that hope of willingness. I've got no evidence, because I haven't seen the results, of of the Man United game today, but they're going to lose. Just like Jesus is going to come. It's fascinating because if you go back in history, go right back to the early church, that first generation, they fully believed, they fully expected that Jesus would return within that generation. And in fact, when you read the New Testament, it's, well, I wouldn't say tainted, but it's filled with this hope of immediate return that's going to happen any moment now. If you told them back then that uh, 2,000 years later, they're still waiting, I wonder how their Christian walk would feel or be like. I wonder how the Bible might have even been written. But there's this immediate hope. And in a sense they had a right, they had empirical evidence that it was going to happen that right away because of what Jesus had told them. In Matthew chapter 24, verses 30 to 34, he's talking to his disciples, he's talking about the end, right, the the coming. He says, then will appear the sign of the Son of Man in heaven, and then all the peoples of the earth will mourn when they see the Son of Man coming, on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. And he will send his angels with a loud trumpet call and they'll gather his elect from all four winds and from one end of the heavens to the other. And even so, when you see all these things, you know that it is near, you, right at the door. Truly, I tell you, this generation will certainly not pass away until all these things have happened. So they, they hear this from Jesus like, ooh. We don't have to will it too much. He's just told us it's going to happen right away. It's going to happen soon. In fact, even earlier, talking to his disciples, he he literally repeats himself. Truly, I tell you, some of you who are standing here will not taste death before they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. Now, I'm not going to get into the theology of what, what Jesus is actually talking about here. But for the early church, this was their hope that he would return. Why? Well, because in all honesty, the world wasn't a really pretty place back then. The idea of the Pax Romana, the peace of Rome, was propaganda. There was nothing peaceful about a dictatorship, about being forced to live a certain way, about your rights being taken away from you. The church, the early church, the first Christians, they they knew that the world wasn't right back then. Some of them were dying, or a lot of them were dying for their faith. A lot of them were ostracized from their families. A lot of them could see the wars and pandemics and famines happening around them. And the only thing they thought, could make this all right, is the hope we have in Jesus returning in this generation. Hope. Well, it didn't happen. It didn't happen in that generation. It didn't happen in the next generation and so the early church had this fondness for trying to figure out when is he coming back because all our hope is focused on him coming back augustine some 300 years later you know said to the to the church he said look don't read revelation literally he literally said that don't read it literally it's symbolism. You've got to read into it because guess what they were doing? Like we're doing today, reading it literally because they're trying to figure out, well, what does this mean? This is what it means, and, and you know, that's the whole thing. And, of course, Augustine trying to confront this, says, look, don't put all your hope in this whole coming back. The hope is already here. It lives with us. Jesus the spirit. They didn't get it. And right up to this time period, 999 A.D. Where a priest by the name of Gilbert of Orléans—I I, Sorry, Susan, I'm not French. I don't, know how, I don't know how to speak French very well. But he's from this town. He becomes Pope. And he takes the name Pope Sylvester II. Now, there is, believe it or not, there's a strategy behind what name you choose as a pope. Did you know that? Well, some of you, yeah. Well, he's, I bet you can't guess why he chose Sylvester. <laughs> yeah. Well, technically, the first bishop of Rome to have a Christian emperor when Constantine had converted was Sylvester I. And over time, as people have been reading into the book of Revelation, a lot of prophecies were being made. One of the most famous ones was by a guy named Methodius. Now, Methodius was martyred a year before Constantine converted. And his uh, prophecy was that a Roman emperor, after the thousand-year reign of peace with Jesus and his rule, will present his sword on the hill of of Golgotha in Jerusalem and then usher in the coming of the Antichrist. And so they're all trying to figure this out. Well, Jebert, who became Pope Sylvester, was very good friends. He was a confidant of the Holy Roman Emperor at the time, a guy named Otto, Otto III. And the two of them together were kind of thinking, the end time is near, we need to prepare So the power of the church and the power of government were working together at this. Otto III was a very interesting guy. His mother was a Byzantine princess. She was from the east. His father was from the west. He was king, King Otto II. It was the first time a Roman emperor, a holy Roman emperor, had the blood of both, east and west. So in their minds, you know, stars are colliding here. We've got it. You know how many times you've heard people say the end is going to come, here's the date and the stars are colliding? Well, they had it. And they had it too because in Revelation chapter 20, if you read it literally, it says Jesus will reign for a thousand years and then after a thousand years, anyone remember the verse? None of you. Satan will be released, the Antichrist will come, and that will usher in the end, the end of days, of which then Jesus will come and crown his glory on earth and form a new kingdom. So these guys are plotting away, how can we, and convinced that Otto would be the last Holy Roman Emperor, which believe it or not, it wasn't wrong. But the problem was, nothing happened when the thousand years came up. And so they started, what do we do, what do we do? So... So, because they thought we could figure this out, Otto was like, I've uh, booked to get a, another Byzantine princess to marry. Got that on the cards. I'm going to unite East and West again. Then I'm going to go to Jerusalem myself. Before he gets married, he dies of malaria. And poor old Gilbert just freaks out, dies of a broken heart. And the whole Christian world just, what do we do now? What's going to happen? When's Jesus coming back? So they, of course, this is what happens when you get too many heads in a room trying to figure out how do we make hope happen. So they picked another date, 1030. That's when Jesus started his ministry in 30 AD. He was 30 years old. So it must be, that's when his actual kingdom began. So instead of 1,000 when he was born, it's 1030. But guess what happened when 1030 came? Nothing. Nothing. No, it must be 1033, you know, that's when he died and he was resurrected, So we, and they did, this is what they did, and everything in Europe kind of revolved around these dates, and finally 1033 comes, nothing happens, and then they think, well, he did say after you know, this generation, so hey, maybe it's 1070... And it really lines up well because that's when the temple was destroyed. So really at that point, you know, the sacrifices stopped and uh, that's it, 1070. And then 1070 comes and nothing happens. Now they're getting desperate. In 1095, Pope Urban II becomes Pope. He's another French guy. He comes from a famous, famous abbey called Cluny. His name's Odo. Like the dog in Garfield? Very, very popular guy, but he's trying to figure out how do we bring about this thing because people are starting to lose hope and the world's becoming a, an ugly place. We need to usher in the new age. So he does something monstrous. The Holy Roman Emperor at this point wants nothing to do with the Pope, nothing to do with the church. It's Henry IV. He's off doing his own thing, so the Pope sets up his own banner as the church, calls all the big dukes from France and Saxon and up in England. At this point, William the Conqueror has already conquered England and made it a Christian, fully Christian nation and gets all the people and he says, okay, if you guys can set up an army, we the church will tell you. Whatever you do, whatever you've done in the past and whatever you do from here on end, will absolve you of your sins. All you need to do is conquer Jerusalem. Because at that point, the Sultan of Baghdad was part of his empire. Of course, 100,000 fighters put their hand up and in 1096, the first crusade heads away. If we haven't got the right person, it doesn't matter, we'll make it happen. We will... Show God how this works. So 100,000 men head off to Jerusalem. 20,000 of them get there between skirmishes and battles with the Magyars and the Turks, with the Saracens and the sea pirates, famine and disease. Only 20,000 get to the walls. The Pope turns a good little spin on it to say it's a miracle they even got there. And it's a miracle because they do actually win and they get Jerusalem. But one of the writers who was there with them, he says, you know, this is a guy that has grown up in Europe, in the Middle Ages, who's seen his fair share of battles and gore and everything. Even he is shocked by the amount of killing that happens on the streets of Jerusalem. He says the streets became red with blood and there were gore that had stacked up against the walls. And he starts to question, is this what we're hoping for? But it didn't matter. They all made their way to the Church of the Holy Sepulchre, and there they waited for the whole New Age to begin. And guess what happened? Nothing. Does it sound familiar? Last week, you know, I tell you a story of history, and, and you kind of scratch your head and you go, How is that happening today? And again, when there is a loss of hope, we humans do crazy things. We really, really do. So, this hope thing must be really important. This hope thing must be something that we need to actually get a grasp on. What does it mean to have hope? Because when we don't have it, we do pretty stupid things. When we don't have it, we use our own power, our own might, our own way of trying to force the issue. As a football fan, that means I'd run onto the field and I'll save that penalty if that keeper can't do it. Or I'll make the substitutes because the coach doesn't know what he's doing, right? But we do this with God in our own lives, don't we? when we don't think it's going the way we think it should be. All the promises that we know, God says he's with us, but no, he's not around, so I'm going to have to make him be around. What do I do? 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 13 to 14, Peter's talking about this hope, and he says, therefore, with minds that are alert and fully sober, I don't think you're going to have to be very sober to go with a group of 100,000 people and walk all the way from... Southern France to Jerusalem. He says, minds that are alert, fully sober, set your hope on the grace to be brought to you when Jesus Christ is revealed it. He's coming. As obedient children, do not conform to the evil desires you had when you lived in ignorance. Now, I love Bible translators. They, they like to speak a proper English, that most of us read that and think, what's he saying? I, I still don't understand what hope is, Rob. I love the Message Bible, it's been vilified, but I don't understand why, because it says it in such an eloquent, everyday language. This is what it says, so roll up your sleeves, put your mind in gear, be totally ready to receive the gifts that come, uh, that, that's coming when Jesus arrives. Don't lazily slip back into your old grooves of evil, doing just what you feel like doing you didn't know any better than you do now. Notice there's not once the word hope in that. The way the world views hope and the way the Bible views hope is actually two very different words. The way we think of hope today, this willingness for something to happen, and if it doesn't happen, we have the power to make it happen, or we will try to anyway. Hope in the Bible is about trust. Be ready for it. Roll up your sleeves. And don't fall back into your old ways. It's interesting that Peter brings that up. Because your old ways are do it yourself. I will make this happen. I will prove the point. Hebrews 11.1 1 says, Now faith is confidence in what we hope for and assurance about what we do not see. Hope is a trust issue. That's really what it comes down to. And the Bible's very clear on this. The early church leaders knew where the people were at. Jesus is coming. This is a big deal. Where is He? What's going on? Our hope is for Him. And they keep telling us we're confident. We don't know when, but we're confident. It's out of our hands. We trust him. It's a hard word, though, eh? And the question I've come up with is, why hope now at Christmas? Why, you know, I can get the peace part, right? We all crave peace in a world that is completely unpeaceful, <laughs> some, for some of us even in our own lives. I, 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 get, I get joy, Right? We're talking about a child being born. There's always joy when a, when a new life comes. I, I get love, you know. Love, 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 love. Yeah, okay, cool. What's hope? Hope for what? Why Christmas? Why is this word hope so important? I read this on Friday, and it just, bang, says everything I want to say to you. It says this, the advent of Christ... This season leading up to Christmas is a vivid reminder that God does what he says he will do down to the last detail. And sometimes in a way, or actually most times, in a way that you will never, ever expect. The story of Jesus is a whole, completely unexpected story. So unexpected that most of the Jews didn't get it. And they're still waiting for the Messiah to come. Which is why you've got so much unrest in their homeland. They've missed it. Because it's just too far-fetched for them. It's too far-fetched for not just them, everybody. And some of us, even in this room, think, really, a baby, three wise men? It's just a story, is it? Is it real? God becoming a baby in a manger? Teenage kids, not married. You couldn't make this up. Dying on a cross to save the world. Not the way I'd do it. Not the script that Hollywood would come out with. Jesus looking like Chris Hemsworth, you know, long hair and the blue eyes, chiseled. No, no. No down to the very last detail, going on. God's faithfulness in the Christmas story gives us hope in our own stories. It gives us hope. Just as God promised to send Jesus, he promises to be with us now through the indwelling presence of the Holy Spirit. Isn't that powerful? This is me getting desperate on a Friday afternoon trying to figure out how do I communicate this concept that's in my head? And I'm so glad of the people who've gone before me. So glad. This is hope. And this is why now hope is a big deal. Just as big as peace is, just as big as love is, just as big as joy is. We have hope. So, (laughs) like I said last week, uh, you know, coming back from a long sabbatical... Some things will change. I'm gonna give you homework every week. So I want you to dwell. I keep saying read. I don't want to mean I don't mean read. Reading's easy. I want you to dwell on 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 13 to 14. Just dwell on it. What does it mean for you? And what does it mean for you falling back into your old ways? What does that look like? I, I can't tell you that. I don't know. I know mine. And I want to leave you with two questions to ponder this week. Two questions. It could be if you're an introvert, that could be something for you to just kind of dwell with. You don't have to go running around talking. If you're an extrovert, go for it. Go talk to everybody. But the question, first one is this. In what areas of your life are you struggling to believe God's promises? In what areas of your life? One thing I've learned is that when people come to me and they, it happens often, believe it or not, and tell me Jesus is coming back, my question now to them is, what are you lacking in your life that you need to feel so strongly about that? What are you struggling with? Because there's obvious struggle if we are so anticipating a return of Jesus because maybe you don't want to face what you're faced with now. Maybe you're too afraid of what tomorrow looks like. Maybe the old ways in your life are creeping back in and you don't want them to and you don't know how to stop it. What are you struggling with? And the second question is this, what might it look like for you to find hope in God's faithfulness today? And I mean today as in now. It be the same question for tomorrow. What might it look like for you to find hope in God's faithfulness Today. Cool? Uh, Still not sure what hope means, huh? Christmas is an interesting time. It happens every year without fail. And without fail, we go through the same rituals every time, the same songs, the same family gatherings. Sometimes without people that we've loved, Sometimes, with way too many people that we love, but it happens every year, you get the peace part, you get the joy part, yeah, okay, love. but what is hope for you? What does it mean for you? Can I ask the music team to come up, Lord God, as we ponder what hope means for us, what you mean by hope. Jesus Christ is our hope, not for some future event to happen. Right now, he is our hope. Remind us of this, Lord, daily, because we do struggle. Many of us, he struggle. Even just thinking about what are the promises God has made. What are they? How are they impacting me today? Do I even know them? Lord, as Christmas comes and we'll, like every year, pass, how can we get a firm grip on hope in our own lives? Holy Spirit, reveal that to us. Comfort us. Challenge us, I pray. Jesus, you are our hope. You're not our hope for something that will happen in the future. You're our hope for here and now, for today. And it's in your name we pray.